Our lifespan is increasing, but what about our health span, the portion of our lives in which we're healthy? Extend your health span with SRW, Science Research Wellness. SRW is a nutraceutical company that curates the latest science and research to formulate supplements designed to support the structure, function, and processes within our cells that change with age. SRW's cell range line, cell 1, cell 2, and cell 3, constitute the complete cellular system range which supports the nine areas of the cell to change with age, the nine hallmarks of aging. SRW's carefully selected cutting-edge ingredients and formulations support the aging process in a way that previous generations have not had access to. Learn more about the science behind SRW, the nine hallmarks of aging, and how you can find out your biological age by going to srw.co. That's srw.co. SRW, the science of aging well. srw.co. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today we're going to tackle a subject that is very, very germane to both mental and physical health. We're going to talk about uh, addiction to social media. And this is actually an issue that we tackled with today's guest. He wrote a book about the effects on our kids of digital obsessions. That came out in 2016. The book was called Glow Kids. Uh, today, he's back with a brand new book entitled Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. Dr. Carderis uh, is a psychologist. He's one of the country's foremost addiction and mental health experts. Uh, he has previous previous book is Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trance. Former professor at Stony Brook Medicine. And he's developed treatment programs all over the country. He's written for all manner of media, Time Magazine, Scientific American, Salon, Psychology Today. He's appeared on TV, Good Morning America, ABC's 2020, CNN, CBS Evening News, PBS, NPR, Fox and Friends, and an Esquire and Vanity Fair. And uh, he has a soon-to-be-published op-ed in the New York Post. And it relates to something very topical, uh, which is the savage attack on Peter Pelosi, uh, the wife, uh, the husband of the Speaker of the House, and uh, how that, uh, how social media may have had an impact on our epidemic of violence and impulsivity in this country. So, uh, Dr. Carderis, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me back, Dr. Hoffman. Always a pleasure to be here. Indeed. So, uh, how did you come to focus on addiction? Because in the book, you actually uh, disclose that you have an interesting past and a near-death experience. Yes, I do have a couple of chapters in my life. I have a chapter one and a chapter two. Um, yeah, that's my own struggles. As many people who get involved in either the mental health field or the addiction field sometimes have to uh, go through their own struggles, and that was true in my case. Uh, Post-college, I developed uh, a pretty bad addiction. I was working in New York in the hospitality industry in between graduate school and got swallowed up by a pretty bad addiction. And 
we, we kind of know what the hospitality process. industry in New York looked like uh, in the 80s and 90s. So uh, yeah. uh, one can only imagine the perils to which you were exposed. Yeah, this was sort of the uh, Gordon Gecko, Rudy Giuliani, um, Wall Street sort of. Uh, yeah, it was the period where excess is best. And it was uh, definitely pre-political correctness. And every, it was the Wild West in lower Manhattan. And um, so... Being a young kid from Queens, I was sort of a kid in the cookie jar, and I got caught up in things that I thought I would be able to manage, and eventually I learned firsthand about how uh, overwhelming addiction can be and how destructive it can be. And it really, really did almost uh, end my life because I was, I did wind up uh, comatose and on life support. This is before they had some of the fancier, you know, Narcan and other interventions. And, um, you know, as part of that process, I, uh, when I did eventually get into the recovery process and clean and sober, you do go through inevitably a meta metamorphosis and a human alchemical process and went back to graduate school and wanted to develop my life to helping other people who were struggling. And initially, the doorway for me, as I became an addictions, first I got my clinical social work degree, then my PhD in psychology, was working with people with substance addiction and really tripped into this issue with process addictions or you know screen addictions and non-substance addictions about a dozen years ago almost by chance because i was working with young people and saw the new flavor of compulsive self-destructive behavior so i was a card-carrying recovery addict myself who was now a trained clinician and i was seeing let's call it the new evolution of habituation so, so it seemed like a, a terrible liability turned into an asset for you because you really had personal experience of this and uh, used that along with your uh, academic foundation uh, to provide uh, more empathic and insightful care for people who, like yourself, uh, fell into patterns of addiction. Yeah, and that's part of the recovery process. And, and thank, yeah, Ron, well, that's exactly what happened. And it was part of the recovery process is you begin to understand that perhaps you're not leave you know there's a void and and a lot of people who suffer with any kind of self-medicating behavior feel some sort of a void whether that void is an existential void or a mental health issue um and and so inevitably one has to find a life of meaning and purpose to really kind of push through and no longer sort of um be on that self-destructive cycle and and so for me it was a an obvious path, you know, when, once I started studying, you know, once I immersed myself, not only because I got involved in the 12 step program, that was part of the, uh, the price of admission for me in my recovery process. I, you start helping people in the 12 step program and then you start realizing that there's more, um, paths to helping other people. So for me, that meant going back to school and getting training and, and it was understanding that people struggle for a variety of reasons. You know, as I mentioned, you know, some people might be self-medicating because they have, unresolved bereavement or depression or just a hole in the soul as we used to say and unless you address those underlying issues there's going to be some propensity to self-medicate and what i was finding as i kind of entered the doorway of this new generation of let's call it digital escapism um a lot of our young people were having early existential crises they didn't see the meaning or the purpose in their lives and they were escaping um through um avatars or synthetic experiences because their own life didn't feel meaningful and and why not escape in in that and when i wrote glow kids six years ago it was i was one of the first people that really 
began to say this is an addiction this is this is compulsive behavior that isn't just a hobby gone sideways this was really destroying a lot of young people's uh academics and personal lives and their health you know i i, I write in this book as well as my last book that there's no coincidence between this pediatric obesity epidemic and diabetes and and the sedentary screening staring lifestyle that we've not only assumed as adults, as our children. Our children are not very healthy, both mentally nor physically. And so when I first started writing about this being an addiction, I got some pushback. Now it's an accepted, you know, the World Health Organization, there's an ICD-11. They, they even have it in the, for, in, for, for listeners. Uh, there is a yeah. book of diagnoses, and the purpose of it is you put in a code, and then you get, basically, you get reimbursement, you know, because it is now acknowledged to be a disease, right. and you're treating disease. It, they, they've invented a new category, right? D- digital addiction. Right. Or, yeah. And that was, it was Internet Gaming Disorder and IGD. But that was a five-year battle. As you know, many of these me- the medical bureaucracies are very slow-moving. And um, initially, there was a little bit of, no, this is just... The problem, I think, Dr. Hoffman, is many people in our generation conflated modern screen time with television. And a lot of us who grew up on television saw it as a fairly innocent pastime. What can go wrong? I grew up on Starsky and Hutch. But, you know, what can happen? And I didn't quite appreciate the full, the sophisticated... Um, methods by which a lot of behavior modification techniques, a lot of, um, well, the, well, the main difference is the immersive and interactive nature of the modern screen time. So when I wrote Glow Kids, it was, oh, wait a second, this is a new potentially habituating thing. It's a new compulsion akin to gambling or any other kind of behavioral addiction like sex. And, and that was step one. And when I wrote the current book, it was really now step two was what is this love affair that we as a society have had with our technology? What are the byproducts to our mental health as a result of this? Because when you put essentially a hunter gatherer species, uh, a, a species that needs, you know, we, you know, people go on keto diets because they, they realize that we still are physiologically hunter gatherers, but they don't realize that we're also socially and emotionally hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. We need the tribe. We need socialization. We need physical activity. So they, they so eat keto happens? foods while flipping through their uh, their Twitter account, you know, uh, <laughs> exactly. incessantly. We call it doom scrolling <laughs> sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. So attending to the physiological part, but not realizing that we weren't meant to be sedentary, isolated, screen-staring, meaning devoid, empty uh, people. And so all of a sudden, you know, I was looking at the statistics, this is right before COVID, and I was noticing the correlation between one step forward for technology, two steps backwards for humanity and our mental health and our physical health. Higher, We were having record rates of suicide and overdose and depression, anxiety, at all-time record levels in 2019, where the highest rates of- Even uh, pre-COVID. This is before COVID. Pre-COVID. Yeah. Right. We were a psychiatric mess pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And and that correlated with and all you had to do was look at the two corresponding bar graphs. Screen time went up and psychiatric illnesses were going up as well. And then there was research that was connecting it more. There's been quite a few really, really sound um peer-reviewed studies that looked at the depression effects, more social media equaled more depression. Um and you know, that that makes that can make sense because if you're not connecting with people face to face and you're in front of a screen, we are hardwired to need face to face interaction. So 
started noticing a lot of the mental health effects, but then also started noticing a lot of the more insidious, let's call them shaping effects of social media. Started seeing a lot of young people who were um, following not only toxic influencers like, let's call it the Kardashian, Kylie Jenner world of influencers where they're creating toxic materialistic values for people, but now they're, they're really prominent psychiatrically unwell influencers TikTok Tourette's and and uh, people who have millions of followers who are who have borderline personality disorder or who have a dis uh, not not only dissociative but there's a whole subculture of DID dissociative identity disorder which we used to call multiple personality, personality disorder right yeah, and the three faces of that kind of thing yeah right and and in three faces of even civil historically genuine multiple personality disorder, sexual trauma in childhood, and three, four, five, six multiple identities to, you know, alters were created to escape the reality of the untenable sexual abuse that had happened. But now you're having what I'm calling pseudo uh, dissociative disorder, performative dissociative disorder, where you have people who are online with alleging to have over a hundred uh, alter identities. And, and the interesting social contagion aspect that's happening is their followers are now beginning to have multiple personalities or the other big one is gender dysphoria. Um, I know this is a, you know, that's a particularly provocative one, the, but there's no other way to explain the spike, a thousand percent spike in gender dysphoria over the last several years. And then the other, there's no other explanation for such a drastic, this is not just social acceptance of people who have gender dysphoria wouldn't explain the thousand percent increase in gender dysphoria. But what we're seeing is that it's become part of this subcategory of influencers who are shaping, let's call them young people who are looking for identity or looking for a sense of um, connectivity. And now they're, they're consciously or unconsciously, I believe, mimicking some of this behavior that they're seeing uh, online. So uh, the you actually... It, you summed it up in a very pithy quote. You say, I freely concede that we have achieved wondrous advancements in our technological abilities, but our species is deteriorating. We're getting weaker, both physically and mentally. And I think that's at the core of your book is the, the uh, uh, detrimental effects of all this uh, media consumption, uh, but also mm -hmm. the, the concerted efforts uh, to give us devices and to create uh, programs and software and algorithms that reel us in and keep us captivated in order to monetize our encounters. Right. Right. I think that that was also an underappreciated aspect of it that people who grew up on television didn't understand, right? Anybody who grew up in the 50s, 60s, or 70s and grew up on jingles for commercials or radio commercials or TV commercials they all had their hooks or their, their, um, you know, there was a psychology of advertising, you know, going back for decades. But what we're seeing is, um, behavior modification 2.0 algorithm fueled, um, techniques that are really insidious because the, the, what I find really troubling is this isn't just marketing to, to kids or to adults. This is, um, the algorithms, the way that they're designed right now is, you know, I call them heat-seeking missiles that are really primed for vulnerability because what big tech has realized is that people can't stop looking at things that are, um, you know, that tickle our lizard brain that are, that, that affect us in an emotional level, 
Mm-hmm. It's, so it's the like most rubbernecking. We, we, there's a lot of rubber. You know, it's like the cars slow down because, yep. you know, there's bloody bodies yep. on the sidewalk and, you know, uh, a burning vehicle. There's a natural tendency so, to do that. Right. So now we're digitally rubbernecking, right? Because we can't stop but look. But if you're an unhealthy, so if you're already struggling with an eating disorder and you're an adolescent female and you're rubbernecking some anorexia content, it happens to exacerbate your anorexia, unfortunately. And that's been proven. If you're struggling with depression and now you're rubbernecking suicide content, and that's the problem, the algorithms now smell, sniff, realize that somebody is struggling within, within a particular arena, and now they bombard them with, an, with a feedback loop of ever more and more toxic content, which only inflames their underlying issue. Now, this is true for psychiatric disorders, and as I write in this op-ed, it's also true for the, let's call them the politically unhinged um, if someone is uh, leans a particular way politically or ideologically and the algorithm again uh, the uh, the cold soulless uh, ai driven algorithm senses what predisposition a person has they know that to maintain engagement they call it an extremification loop they have to increase the intensity of whatever that person's mm-hmm. interested in to maintain engagement or else a person gets bored and they'll eventually drift off of that content but it's also a lot so, of confirmation bias because it, it's it, exactly it, it, what it, it is reinforces that yeah right it's confirmation bias on steroids in an echo chamber 24 7 with sleep deprivation and you know i talk in the book about people's uh, psychological immune systems being compromised hmm. um you know historically your parents and my parents were raised in a certain way that helped strengthen their psychological immune system. If and I'm speculating, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you were raised by wolves or if you had a healthy normal family, but, but, uh, you know, historically, historically, the nuclear family and and some of the issues, there was a tethering and there was a sense of support uh, because I'm a big believer that a big antidote to a lot of the the issues of modernity go back to not only I talk about ancient philosophy because I'll get into that in a moment, but just in terms of their lifestyle, they were more, you know, that's why there were blue zones, right? When you look at what are the common denominators in blue zones, longevity zones where people tend to live for long periods of time, one of the main common denominators is strong interpersonal relationships. And if you look at what the digital has done to our interpersonal relationships, rare is the person that has you know, a, a tightly knit group of close friends that they see on a regular basis. And and we need that. We need that. And I think that that underlies a big part of the depression epidemic that we're having. Mm-hmm. We've lost that sense of community. Um, but there's also critical thinking and the clarity that, you know, I, I write in the book about my father. He, you know, he was a World War II era Greek immigrant. And, you know, folks from that generation as uh you know, sometimes we'll look at the past dismissively and they didn't get it or whatever, but there was a clarity of thought and there was a common sense and the critical thinking that, um, I hate to say it, but as you, you know, because I was a university professor for 10 years, is increasingly less and less common yeah. to find common sense. And now you're having this, for lack, you know, some people like um, NYU professor, um, uh, the author of uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, um, oh God, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, um, talked about the last 10 to 15 years the fragility um the emotional reactivity of a lot of young people and i think social media has essentially created that 
that fragility, that reactivity. What's interesting about what you're saying is that you don't have to be diagnosed with a clinical psychiatric disorder, uh, bipolar disorder, depression, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, but we're all affected at some level. And you point out that this change in our uh, media environment has it is likened to enhancing something called borderline personality disorder. Can you explain what that is from a psychiatric standpoint and, and how that might be, you know, that we might, we might now all be suffering from subclinical borderline personality disorder? Yeah. So, as I said you know, earlier, I was one of the first people that's, that was sort of eating my popcorn and looking at the social landscape six, seven years ago and saying, oh, this looks sort of like addiction out there. These teenagers on their phones looks like um, something akin to because it was meeting all the diagnostic criteria of substance addiction. Fast forward six years later, I'm looking at the social landscape again and young people in the way um, you know, I have a treatment program in Austin, Texas, where we specialize in 17 to 30 year olds with dual diagnosis and psychiatric disorders and we were seeing this large spike in personality disorders and specifically borderline personality disorder and and one of the main symptoms or one of the main diagnostic criteria of bpd was um high, uh, was extreme black and white thinking mm-hmm. that that leads to a lot of emotional reactivity and binary a lot of thinking binary thinking right yeah. so there was an inability to see things in nuance or the grays uh yeah everything was either black or white love or hate red or blue and 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 anything in between would lead to sort of an emotional breakdown Hmm. and so there was this sort of um and what i began to speculate as i was looking out at our social landscape and our political landscape was that we were getting increasingly binary thinkers as a society and then i started looking at the digital world that we live in, which is extremely binary. Um, the, the, the coin of the realm in social media and any digital platform is extreme. It's extremity. Um, nothing gets views or followers that, you know, thoughtful discourse of two, uh, adults talking is not going to get a hundred million views on TikTok. Right. Just go um, on, but with, just go on Twitter. You could, you, you know, put your hazmat suit on and wade into Twitter, and that is <laughs> that's right. writ large all over Twitter, that's no matter right. what the issue. Right, and you can't be nuanced with 144 characters just by nature of the platform. Yeah. Yeah. So I was beginning to hypothesize that the, you know, McLuhan had said that the medium is the message that the new medium, this binary medium, was perhaps changing the architecture of the way that especially younger people process information into sort of binary sorting mechanisms that in, you know, in the same way that in linguistic determinism, there was this theory that language shapes thinking. Now it was beginning to look like our digital media was shaping the way that we think. And again, going back into this binary polarity and, and, you know, we're, I think roughly probably around the same age. I've never seen the political climate, uh, as as we've always had opposing sides of a political aisle, but the extreme nature of what's happening um, seems to be a, both a byproduct of of this societal schism that's happening, and then the amplification of this of mm-hmm. this echo chamber, of this feedback loop, of this confirmation uh, bias that we were talking about, and and so that's happening to all of us to some degree. But the more unhealthy 
and that's why I talked about the Paul Pelosi attacker. If you're already a little bit um, not that stable mentally, and you fall into one of these rabbit rabbit holes, you're going to come out uh, even more unwell yeah. and more extremified, if that's a word, yeah. uh, than before. That's a perfect storm. Okay, a good point right. of us to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And we have a lot more to discuss, including uh, your upcoming op-ed in the New York Post. By the time many of our listeners uh, listen to this podcast, it's likely they will have read it or will have access to it. Uh, it's entitled uh, Social Media Madness, and uh, it lays out uh, the case that uh, the current violence uh, politically, including uh, the attack on uh, Peter Pelosi, uh, Paul Pelosi, I'm sorry, uh, was uh, in some ways stoked by our current digital media. The book is Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. We're going to take a look at some possible solutions in part two. Our guest, Dr. Nicholas Carderas. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.